All right. Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome. I'm so glad you guys are here. Welcome to our first weekend at Hammock Point Elementary School. Uh, we are going to be here for the next nine weeks while Quiet Waters Elementary in Deerfield Beach is being remodeled, and they're doing the roofs and the ACs. Not necessarily a full remodel, but I guess it'll be a little bit cooler next time we go. Uh, but welcome. I'm so glad you guys are here. Um, we are starting the book of Nehemiah today. So do me a favor. Turn to Nehemiah chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We would love to give you a Bible. So Nehemiah 1. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We'll pass one out to you. It is page 226 in the Bibles we are passing out. Um, I know Nehemiah might be hard to find. It's kind of like in the middle before the Psalms. Um, Nehemiah 1. I hope you guys like our tables turned to pews. So awesome. Uh, these are literally cafeteria tables that turn into pews, and now you're forced to sit with other people. I love it. This is great. This is so good. Uh, also, sorry for maybe you saw some of the technical difficulties. Uh, I think the school here is like a black hole for just cell phone service. Um, so if you work for Verizon and can make a tower like be built right here, that would be great. I'd really appreciate that. Um, <laughs> but yes, it's very difficult to access uh, our lyrics that way, but I think we do have PowerPoint. Sweet. Nehemiah chapter 1. And just a reminder, today after service uh, is, is Guys Day. Um, this is our first Guys Day. I was given a really hard time because my wife plans a lot of like ladies Christmas things and fun things. So I'm like, okay, we got to do something. So we're having dude day today uh, from 1.30 to 3.30. We're going to meet at Quiet Waters Park at Cabbage Palm Pavilion. We are making some steak sandwiches. Well, I'm, we're not. Uh, we have an awesome gentleman who will be making some uh, steak sandwiches. That if you're here for a one-year anniversary, they're incredible. Um, but yes, that will be today right after 1.30. Also, I want you guys to know, as we start Nehemiah, um, we just ordered some journals. Just little Nehemiah journals. They are available in the back. I don't know if you saw that when you came in. It's okay. Um, if you would want to pick up one, go ahead. I mean, they don't cost anything. Just you can donate anything you want or just grab one for free. We would just love for you to take notes and uh, just remember as we go and work our way through this book. All right, Nehemiah chapter 1. Before we read, before we pray, let me just really quick just share my, my hope and heart as we go through this, this new book, this new series. Um, we are calling this series Holy Ambition. The idea, is, the idea is that we want to see when a, a good desire meets a greater God. What can, happen, what can happen when you have someone who has a really good desire, but God who also has the same desire and wants to do the same work. And so if you guys remember at the, year, uh, the start of the year, in January this year, um, we kind of for our church just prayed over like, what is the, um, God, what does he want us to do this year? What does he want to focus on? And so we kind of called you know, 2019 the year to build, the year to build. And if you remember, we passed out these little hammer keychains. It says build on it, uh, based off 1 Corinthians 3. We're told to build on the foundation of Jesus. So here's, here's my desire. The reason why we're doing Nehemiah, the reason why 2019, the, the goal for us isn't like how do we build bigger. The goal is how do we build healthy? How do we build into our church? How do we build into our community? How do we build into families? Um, how do we build community? What does it look like to really follow Jesus in a healthy group of people who are seeking after him? And by healthy, that just means we will still sin. We'll still blow it, but we repent often. We forgive all the time. It's one of those things where we just want to say, God, help us build your church. Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church. This is Jesus' church, and we get to participate in this process. And so as we're kind of looking at, like, what's next, Philippians, live as citizens of heaven, going into Nehemiah, for us, the idea is, like, God, help us build your work. 
See, I know Nehemiah in many ways, if, if you've been around the church, almost like a cliche book. I've, I've so badly wanted to avoid this book. You have no idea. I'm like, I don't want to teach Nehemiah. Everyone teaches Nehemiah. But I feel like just as the more we prayed, it's like, I can't avoid this. You see, we're going to see, obviously, and if you know the book, if you don't know the book, don't worry. Today we'll have a lot of context. We'll look at where it stands in the history of time, why this book matters today. We'll look at that. But you see a guy who has a brokenness for a city. You see a guy who has a great calling from God, where God pours out vision, where God pours out fa- favor, where God raises up laborers to send out to do this work. And we're really just praying God do it again. As we're looking just for God, look at South Florida, what you're doing, whether it's Deerfield, Boca, we're just South Florida. God, do so, let us like develop that same brokenness, the same passion, the same compassion. God, let us see things that we do not see in our city. God, give us a vision like Nehemiah. And so um, this is our, our prayer. There's so many lessons in this book, by the way. I know that you people want to view Nehemiah as like, this is a great book on leadership. This is a great book that deals with trials and difficulties, and we'll, we'll cover all of that. But really, you see a guy who takes a big risk for God, who leaves a lot of comfort, a lot of safety, and puts himself in a dangerous position to do a greater work. work. And we're just praying that God would do that again. We're just, honestly, our prayer, our cry, is that God, that you would do this again and again and again. Not just our church, just all churches that love you, serve you, follow you. Pour out your spirit. We want to see a new work. And so, again, uh, that's kind of my hope. That's why we're going through this. There's so much more we could look at. There's so much more. We, we will get to that. But I hope that you kind of catch the vision today for us. When we talk about holy ambition, how do we have a good desire, meet a greater God, and we've seen a work that no one could do on their own, only by God's spirit and by God's power. Not by might, but by his spirit. Amen? So let's read Nehemiah 1. We're going to actually read this chapter, chapter 1, verse 1 through 11. We're going to read it as a whole, then we'll pray and look at it more in depth. So just follow along with me. Nehemiah chapter 1, page 226 in the Bibles we passed out. Here we go. It says in verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. It came to pass in the month of Kislev, in the twelfth year, as I was in Shushan, or Susa, the citadel, that Hannah, I'm going to blow all these names, just forgive me, Hanani, uh, one of my brethren, and it's believed it's actually his brother, came with men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, You keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night. For the children of Israel, your servants, and and he says, uh, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you. And have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you who are cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. 
Now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Oh Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. For I was the king's cupbearer. Let's pray. And we'll look at this more in depth. Why don't you just do this? Bow your heads. Just take a quick second. And why don't you just pray? Take 15 seconds and say, God, speak to me. Maybe you've heard this book. Maybe you've never heard it. God, speak to me something new. Father, we just ask um, that we would slow down enough to hear from you. God, that even though we don't necessarily see this physical brokenness and ruins or just we don't see it outwardly always, God, help us to see the spiritual brokenness in our community. Help us to see things, God, that you see. Lord, I just pray and ask that this would not be another study, another book we just walk through. But God, produce some new things in our heart. Give some vision, God. I pray they just raise up people in this place to have a desire to work together to accomplish really bringing the gospel to all of our community and to the ends of the world. Jesus, just give us practical needs. Give us practical ways to help and meet those needs. Lord, we just want to be like you in this process. We want to seek to build your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. So we thank you and praise in your name, Jesus. Amen. Holy ambition. You know, I've made some pretty ambitious decisions in my life. Some would call them foolish. I think back to the middle school days, I think uh, we made a lot of ambitious decisions that were not the smartest or not the brightest. Um, I think in my adulthood, I've been ambitious for some good things and for some wrong things. My wife makes fun of me after we had our son. I was 26 when my son was born, turned 27 right after he was born. He's now four. And uh, right after he was born, I decided to take up skateboarding. I don't know why. I think I went through a mid-midlife crisis in my mid to late 20s. I'm like, you know, I'm still young. I remember this thought hit me in my mid-20s, like, can I still learn new things? Like, am I done learning? It kind of like haunts me. Like, I'm going to learn new things. And what was skateboarding? And so my son's like five months old and skating with him and... and looking around and at the park and I see something rock and I don't know why it just distracted me and I fell and I, I broke my radius. It's great. And so I'm here I am with like a five-month-old broken elbow. My wife's like, never again. You are done. Your skateboarding career is over. I'm like, you're right. It's over. Never again. I can never take risks like that now anymore. Uh, but I've made some pretty ambitious decisions and I've made some, and some were selfish, some were for good reasons. And I really do want us to kind of take this thought into mind. I want us to talk about holy ambition. Let's really think about holy ambition. Uh, ambition, just so you know, like wh what we're talking about, is a strong desire to do or to achieve something typically requiring uh, determination and hard work. That's how it's been defined. Let me just say it this way. Ambition gets a bad rap. I think when people talk about someone who's ambitious, it's a usually with a negative connotation, like that person's very ambitious. And for some reason today, we've kind of taken ambition and only made it a negative thing. And let's be honest, ambition, selfish ambition, the Bible has a lot to say about it. And it can be extremely negative. James 3, 14 talks about how selfish ambition has been the root to a lot of pain and evil in the world. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, went through Philippians. Uh, Paul says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition. There's a verse in Jeremiah 45, 5. He asks this question, he says, do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. 
So the Bible has a lot to say about selfish ambition. And I, and I think in many ways, it's kind of now we went to an extreme where now we're, there's like a fear of someone being ambitious. And again, selfish ambition can do a lot of evil. Men and women who've been very selfish in their ambitions have caused a lot of pain. It's caused a lot of divorce, caused a lot of heartache, breakup, war, disaster, whatever. Selfish ambition in the heart of men and women has caused a lot of pain. But there's also something that God, God did create it. And it's, it's wielded by our heart. We can either use it for God and his glory or use it selfishly. And so there's another side to this where there's holy ambition. Where you have an ambition or desire to take a risk for God, to do something for God, to spread his kingdom for his glory, for his name. And I do know that ultimately desires and motives can be in question. And we should look at that and talk about that. But, but here's the thing. I really do think that even in the church now, if you have a desire to do something for God, sometimes I got a question, watch your motives, and I, I agree we need to. But there, there's, we're at this point now where I think a lot of the church were stopped, we have stopped taking risks for God, maybe because of the fear of looking ambitious. I wouldn't doubt if in this room right now, God has placed some big dreams and desires on some of your heart, whether to be a part of a nonprofit, start a nonprofit, do a great work, church plant across the nation, I have no idea. I think God has probably put a lot of ambitions in your heart for God and his kingdom and his glory, and you're going, but can I? to leverage your business for God and his glory, to leverage your occupation for God and his glory, and you're like, well, I don't want to be ambitious in this. And I think this is so important for us to talk about, because I want to I wanna look at the idea of like how to restore and rescue ambition. I just ordered this book because I was listening to a lot of uh, pastors highly recommend this book. There's a book called Rescuing Ambition. Um, I'm going to read it and tell you how it is, and if you want to get it, we might try to provide it here. But the, the idea, the concept, from my understanding, from just looking at a little bit, is this idea that how do we rescue those from the tyranny of selfish ambition? How do we not try to s suppress ambitions that God has given you, but how do we actually redeem them and rescue him for his glory? Again, let me just please be clear. God has given some of you guys great ambition, and I pray, and I beg, and I hope, and I ask God pu to purify that ambition and to make it for him, for his kingdom, for his glory. And I'd say, do not, do not run from those ambitions. Maybe some of you have. For a long time, I ran from different desires to do things for God. I would say, I think now is the time we should be looking at taking risks again for God. You know, as we meet as a, as a church, we meet as leadership, we meet in our groups, one of our, like, values, one of our plumb lines to attain this value is we want to take risks for the kingdom. And I don't want that just to be a saying. I would love for us to be a church that says we're going to actually take risks for God in his kingdom. You see, here in Nehemiah 1, we're exposed to a lot of great thoughts. But here in Nehemiah 1, we're going to see what's specifically really the beginning of revival. And here's kind of my prayer. Um, I want us to really in depth look at just the beginning of revival. We can't manipulate revival. We can't force revival. But how do we put ourselves in a position where God can, be, can, where God can do a new work? All right, so really the title today and what we're going to see here in Nehemiah 1 is Where Revival Begins. Where Revival Begins. Now there's four things that we're going to see specifically and look at and talk through, but we're going to kind of see where revival begins, how it begins, how God positions people in a place where he goes, now I can do a work. Now I can do something new. All right, so four keys to revival. We're going to talk through this. Number one is this, ask questions. Ask questions. Number two, have a genuine brokenness. Number three, prayer. And number four, you got to act. So let's walk through this text. I really do see this is kind of like the beginning stages of revival. And this is so important. Let's not miss this. And this could be personally. This could be corporately. I think revival begins with me privately, with you privately. And, and God, do it, stir in our hearts together. Like, knit our hearts together in this. Like, let this not be an isolated thing. But it does you start with one. I think the best way to see a revival begin, as some other people have put it, is light yourself on fire and let everyone just kind of watch. And then eventually join in. 
And that's our desire. So let's look at this. Where revival begins, number one, ask questions. Read verse one again with me. Nehemiah 1 verse 1, let's read it again. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. It came to pass in the month of Kislev, that's like November, December, kind of crosses over. In the twelfth year, or in the twentieth year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. Number one, again, ask questions. I want you to see that there's his brothers, fellow Jews, come back from Jerusalem, and Nehemiah's like, I have so many questions. Now let's just talk through this. In any great story that you might read in any novel, there's usually something that's kind of spark the person to want to do something great. There's something that kind of um, moves them to want to accomplish something big, and this is that moment. He sees his brothers come back from Jerusalem. He goes, tell me, what is it like right now in Jerusalem? And their answer is basically, it's falling apart. People's hearts are broken. The walls are broken. God's name is a reproach among the people. And you see that it started with a question. Let me just be really clear, because this is so important for all of us. I believe God will change your future and your destiny by what questions you're asking. I mean, the questions you and I ask can literally change our lives. I think questions really reveal, obviously, what we care about. When you and I ask questions, it reveals, like, what do you really care about? Why are you asking that question? Sometimes people ask me questions, I'm like, why, why are you asking that? You kind of see where their hard perspective might be. Others, people might ask questions, and you're like, why are you asking that? And it's like, I have a burden. I don't know. I just feel like God's telling me to do something. I don't know what that is yet. Listen, questions will literally change your eternity and change your destiny. I wish more people would ask questions about God, about eternity, about morality, about life, about death. I wish we'd ask questions about brokenness. And like our next door, I, if we ask questions, I think that's where it all begins. So let me give you some history, all right? This is the fun, nerdy uh, part of the text where you kind of go, let's talk about the history of Nehemiah, because it's important. You're like, who's Nehemiah? What's going on? When does this happen in history? Why does this matter today? What was God doing in the grand scheme of scriptures? Really quick, fun fact, if you read the Bible, it's filled with many stories, but it's one big story, right? I mean, the Bible has tons, I mean, hundreds of micro stories. But in the end, when you look at the Bible as a whole, it's people are broken, People are in despair, and God is constantly pursuing and seeking to redeem. I mean, the storyline of the Bible is like there's brokenness and there's redemption. There's brokenness and there's redemption. I mean, that is why Jesus ultimately came, to bring redemption. And so when we look at a little story of Nehemiah, it reminds us of the bigger story. It reminds us of the story that there's brokenness, and Jesus Christ has come to redeem all things, make all things new. Amen? So this story, even though we're going to look at it and like it's a small little story, it is so significant in the big story. It points us to another story. It always points us to another story, and that is Jesus Christ and his story of redemption of the world. So let's read this, because we're going to see that. So as we talk about this, as we look at this more, it's so important for us to get this. So let's just talk about the history and context. So what, what, what happens? What's taking place? All right, let's re- really quick. I'm going to try to go through like 40 books of the Bible in like 10 minutes. All right? <laughs> you ready? You're like, just this is really dangerous. I know. All right, big, 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 big picture. God creates everything right? Adam and Eve, things are good. Sin comes in the world. There's brokenness. Eventually, there's a flood. Eventually, God calls out a guy named Abraham. Abraham, who's worshiping the moon god, a pagan man, becomes, in a sense, the first Jew. God's like, get circumcised, and and you're going to do this with everyone and all your kids moving forward, and now you're Jews. All right, first guy. So Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. These 12 sons, one of them is Joseph. He becomes a great leader in Egypt, if you remember. Uh, uh, After he leads in Egypt for a while, for a period of a few hundred years, they go from having like prosperity in Egypt to now becoming slaves in Egypt. Eventually God says, Moses, redeem my people, let my people go. We know that story. Moses comes on the scene, brings them into the, the promised land. Well, 
eventually Joshua brings them into the promised land. Then there's the book of Judges. The judges are there to try to bring order to the chaos that was now this new nation, this new country. Now God's ruling and moving through judges and prophets. And then here's what happens in the slowdown. And then the people say, we want a king. And God's like, I don't, nah, I don't recommend a king. I'm your king. We want a king. You want a king, you'll get a king. So if you guys remember the first king, is a guy named Saul. Saul becomes king. Saul eventually, you know, kind of loses his way. God raises up David, calls out David. David becomes king. David's a great king who also does some pretty terrible things, but he's a great king when people look back and they remember him. They also remember some other things. Uh, David has a son named Solomon. Solomon is the one who builds the temple, the first temple for God. God used to meet in tents with Moses. Now it's like, let's build God a house, and they build a temple. Um, so Solomon builds a temple. He has a son. You have Rehoboam and Jeroboam. You have Rehoboam who's really leading. You have Jeroboam who causes a rebellion. Here's why this matters. The kingdom splits in half. Ten tribes go with one. Two tribes go with another. The kingdom's <laughs> split in half. And now, here's kind of where we're at. There's these two kingdoms. The northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. Do you guys, are you tracking with me? Does that make sense so far? Okay. There's a northern kingdom, southern kingdom. Both kingdoms, right away, forget God. There's little revivals here and there in the, in the different kingdoms, but it, for the most part, they're turning to other gods, they're worshiping other gods, they're sacrificing their children on, burnt, on burning idols, they're doing terrible, disgusting things. Jeremiah, one of the prophets, comes along and says, if you do not repent, the Babylonians are going to come and they're going to take us as slaves. We're, we're going to actually live out what God has promised. They don't listen to Jeremiah, the Babylonians come, so let's just bring this down. So we have a timeline, all right? Here's the first thing. If you want to take note, that's why I have these journals, if you want to remember these things, why does this matter? You'll see why it matters. Here's the first thing in the timeline. The fall of Jerusalem uh, to the Babylonians was in 586. Jeremiah said, repent, repent. They're not going to repent. So Jerusalem falls to the hand of the Babylonians. This is the empire that was basically ruling the known world at this time. Is it up there? Let's make sure. <gasps> no. Is it? I can't see. Ask questions. All right. <laughs> Where is it? <laughs> All right. It's okay. We'll keep going. Five, the fall of Jerusalem to Babylon in 586. Number two, the fall of Babylon to Cyrus, the king of Persia in 539. This is so important. If you love Bible and you love Bible history and Bible prophecy, this idea is God, 150 years before Cyrus is born, literally calls Cyrus out by name in Isaiah 44 and in other passages. It says, there's going to be a servant named Cyrus. This servant named Cyrus is the king of Persia. He's the one who actually overtakes the Babylonians, where the Jews were slaves in, in Babylon. And so now Cyrus takes over, and God calls Cyrus his servant, I think for many reasons. He calls him his shepherd, actually. And the interesting thing about Cyrus is he actually uniquely, in just human history, has like a, a compassion for the Jews. Really unique, still to this day. And so you see Cyrus goes, hey, you've been slaves here in Babylon. He sends and he lets the first wave of Jews who are held in captivity back. Is it there yet? Because I see your faces looking up. Yes, awesome. So here's the idea. The first waves of Jews returned under Zerubbabel, in 538. If you want to read more about this, you can read the book of Ezra. They read the book of Ezra. Ezra and Nehemiah were originally one book. This is why this is so important. Nehemiah was called Second Ezra, okay? But Nehemiah is kind of like, after through history, it just became its own book, and I think that's good. But they're just so cl closely knit together. And so, uh, the third thing again, the first wave of Jews returned under Zerubbabel. If you want to read more about that time period, um, you read the book of Zechariah, the book of Haggai. You kind of see this is them, they're rebuilding the temple. So the first wave of Jews, like we've been in, held captive for years. They go back to Jerusalem, like let's build the temple to God. It actually says when they laid the foundation of the temple to God, the older Jews and priests who could remember the previous temple were now probably in their 80s, 90s. They saw the foundation being laid and they just wept. 
and they knew this is not going to be like the last temple. But at the same time, they're weeping. The younger generation's going, yes, we have a foundation for a temple, and they're celebrating. And there's excitement because, God, you're doing something. Even if it's not like the last, we're going to have a place to worship you. And so that's under this king. Uh, that's the first wave of Jews under Cyrus. Number four, we're going to see this. Darius, the Mede, he took the throne in 522. Uh, this is important because this is when the temple was completed. You can read about him again in Ezra. Next, we're going to see the reign of Xerxes, or Ahasuerus. He took the throne in 486 BC. Yes, this is the guy that married Esther. Now, this is where you can go back and like read the story of Esther, and you can read like her petitioning the king. God put Esther in a place and a position, obviously, to save and rescue the Jews in many ways. So this guy is now where we see just God moving in a very unique way. Then we're going to see after Xerxes, his son, the reign of Artaxerxes from 465 to 424 BC. This is the king in the book of Nehemiah. So now we see Artaxerxes. His dad, his mom actually, you could say, was a Jew. I mean, Esther, his mom, the f- part of the royal family. And so he has a heart for the Jews. And so he actually sends a second wave of Jews from Babylonian captivity now to the Persian captivity. He sent them back to Jerusalem. And this is with Ezra. Ezra's there to bring in like spiritual form. So they built the temple like 80 years previously. Ezra goes back and he's like, after 80 years, they're broken. They're a mess. And Ezra like brings a mini revival. So we read the book of Ezra. It's like, here's spiritual reform now. We need a revival. So Ezra comes. There's a little mini revival. Now it's 13 years later. And here's Nehemiah. There's been two waves of Jews who've gone back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple to bring spiritual reform. Nehemiah's like, tell me about Jerusalem. Do you follow with me? He's going, tell me about Jerusalem. And they're going, oh, well, there's no walls and the gates have been burned and it's a mess. God's name is reproach. It's a nightmare. And you think it's like, we've had two wave of exiles going back. Ezra's there currently. Ezra's alive in the same time. He's there currently going, but Ezra's there. There's supposed to be like spiritual reform. That revival was very short-lived. And, and you kind of do see that just historically and throughout the Bible. So the third wave of Jews returned with Nehemiah during the reign again of Artaxerxes in 445 BC, 13 years later. And we're going to see the third wave of Jews go. We're going to see Nehemiah build the walls, build the gates. Now, not build gates, build the gates. Now, it's also your face like, what? Now, the reason why this is so important and, and understanding the context of this, you can see Nehemiah has like a hope. He's like, so is it rebuilt? How's it going? Are people worshiping God finally again? Now that we have a temple? Now that we kind of have our place that we've been slaves for now, now Nehemiah's I'm over like 140 years later, it's like, are people actually, do they get it yet? So they, just, they still don't get it. And you can almost just feel the weight come over Nehemiah. And, and really quick, by the way, Nehemiah coming and building the walls or building the gates, I understand that today in our cultural moment, you know, build that wall. Just, I want you to push that out of your mind for a second and how that relates to us. And like, oh, why is Nehemiah building a wall? Walls are bad. Okay, let's just push that out of our mind for just a second. H- here's the idea of that. Um, I want you to think that as a city in the East, by having a wall, it means now we have a place where we can prosper. There's not going to be people, raiders who come in and can just kind of take what they want, take our women, rape our women, take our people. We might not have an organized army yet. A wall is very important to us, not having an organized army, not having justice really happening, no way to hold them accountable. A wall is extremely important. I mean, for us today, think about it this way. Think, I'm like, okay, I want you to go home tonight, and I want you to, everyone to leave their front door open when you go to bed. Go to bed, leave the front door open. All right, don't check. Like, no one would sleep. I would not sleep, especially if in their context there are raiders coming in, and there are people who are seeking their destruction specifically, and you're like, let's just leave our front door open while we know there's gangs walking through our neighborhoods. Like, you would not do that. This was just a way for them to finally have security and safety. And I want us to see something else that's very important, so important. Do you see how long it takes, if we put that timeline back up, do we see how long it takes for there to really kind of be not just rebuilding of the walls and rebuilding the gates? Nehemiah chapter 1 through 7, he rebuilds the walls, 
and gates. It's incredible in 52 days. We'll talk. It's incredible. And then Nehemiah chapter 8 to 13, there's like spiritual transformation reform happening. And there's this holistic approach. God's like, I'm going to rebuild everything physically outwardly, but there's also going to be rebuilding of you as you do it. And we do see that, guys, it takes time. I just want to remind us of this. Hey, church, it takes time very, very often to see God do a, a mighty work. Sometimes I'm in such a hurry. I'm such a squirrel ADD guy. <laughs> I got to do something like, you know, want to move on. And God is like, slow down. Dig your feet in. Do not move. It's going to take you a while. And I just want us to think about this. We want things to be instantaneous, and sometimes it just takes a while. For us, there's this conviction for my wife, my family, and I to like place our roots here and to say we're going to be in this for the long haul. God, we want to see South Florida know Jesus, walk with Jesus, use that God has given South Florida, use what God has given us. How do we leverage that in our area around the world for the gospel? How do we use that to further God's kingdom in other areas? And it's going to take a while, and it's not overnight. And I just need to be reminded, I think we need to be reminded of that. And here's why I'm saying this. All of this, this story, this timeline, we look back in history, but here's what I, it's so important. It starts with a question. And the question is, how are, how are my people? How is the city? How are they doing? Did Ezra bring the, re- is the revival still happening 13 years later? It's like, oh, of course not. No, no, no. <laughs> that's, that's long gone. And I want us to see this because I really do believe God changes the course of history when people ask the right questions. And you guys, please, what are some questions that we need to be asking? I feel like when we get together and have prayer meetings, it's like, God, what is it? What is it you want to do? What is it that we don't see? God, where is it you want to put our resources, our time, our energy, our money? God, what is it? Show us. How do we do it? Who's coming with us? How are we going to do it? And honestly, questions change so much. I think questions in my life change my, my eternity, my destiny. I'm sure it has for you as well. There's a verse that's really interesting, by the way, in Jeremiah 15. Listen to this. Jeremiah 15, verse 5, if it's up here, hopefully it will be. Uh, It says, For who will have pity on you, O Jerusalem? Or who will bemoan you? Here's some questions. Or who will turn aside to ask how you are doing? Want to know who this is? This is Nehemiah. Jeremiah is is, is basically saying, who's going to give it? Who's going to care? Who's going to care about you? You're rebelling against God. You're going to be slaves in Babylon. You're going to be slaves in Persia. Who's going to care about you? And then Nehemiah's like, I, I care. I, I want to answer some of those questions. I want to continue asking questions, but I also want to be an answer to the question I'm asking. So important. So important. Guys, can I, can I put it this way? Um, I've no, no one can ever force a great work of God. No one can ever force or manipulate a revival. It's interesting if you study like church history and revivals around the globe. No one can like force it, but know what you can do? You can put yourself in a position where you're saying, God, I want to put myself in a position where you can bless, where you can pour out your spirit. I want to I fast and pray. I want to have a genuine brokenness. I want to be in tune with what it is you're trying to do. God, what is it you're doing? How can we get on board? There, it's not that necessarily you can manipulate the hand of God by any means, but how do we put ourselves in a place where God can pour out his spirit? Amen? You guys want to know how I, th- I think of the first step? Let's ask questions. See, what are some questions we're afraid to ask? I think there are some questions... I don't necessarily want to even ask or pose, or maybe you don't want to ask. Because with that might come this obligation. So let's move on to the second thing. Number two is this. After you ask questions, we see he has a genuine brokenness. Look at verse 4. Nehemiah 1 verse 4. After he asked, it says, So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. He has a genuine brokenness before God. This is so important. Let me just put it this way. Please don't miss this. We need to live in the moment. We need to 
not be in a hurry to get out of it. We need to live in the suffering for a moment. You know, we live in this generation where it is really interesting. Like, we can watch a terrible news story for like four minutes. I have notifications. You have notifications. There's YouTube. You watch something terrible happen on the world, and then the video ends. It's like three, two, one, and there's like a, a little child chasing a butterfly. And you're like, oh, things are better again. And we're like, oh, it's happy butterfly, happy child. And it's so bizarre. We live in such a weird, like, in one moment, I can be like, oh, this is terrible. And we're like, ha, funny butterfly. Like, what is that? We live in, honestly, and it, it, if you think about this and we slow this down, it's like we are numbing ourselves to the reality of what's happening around us. It's crazy because think we didn't, no one, no one in the history of the world has like instant access to what's happening in Yemen right now. We can just look at our phone and be like, oh, that's what's happening. It's terrible. Wow. Move on. It, it blows my mind that we can kind of know what's happening in any country at any time. There's videos. There's uplink. You can see what's happening in Syria. You can see these little things. You go, oh, that's pretty bad. I mean, and then we just move on with our day. It, it's crazy. We don't sit in the brokenness anymore. We don't sit in the weight of what's really happening around us anymore. It's, it's, it's one of those things where we want to move on. Who wants to sit in it? But there's, for some reason, there's something about people sitting in it. There's something about, he's, Nehemiah, going to fast and pray for days. For days. This is not like a, let's do something, and like he reacts. This is not a reaction. Do we get that? Can we understand that Nehemiah is not reacting? Like, we got to just build. Let's build. That's the answer. First, he just slows down, and he's like, let's stop and pray. Let's stop and be broken for a little bit. I cannot stress this enough. I know we are the generation like fix things and go get things done and let's solve the problem. But maybe it's like, well, what happens if we solve the problem or we create another problem? Is this the right solution? Are we just, are we just throwing money at it and that's not really getting the heart of the problem? Is it really education? Is it God? What is this? Gospel center? What is the issue? How do, we sit, how do we sit in it for a little bit? How do we not just say, did you hear about this nonprofit that's doing that? Like may, maybe it's good. Maybe it's not. Let's just slow down. That's something that something I've been praying through, reaching out to different ministries, nonprofits, going, I just want to get to know you. I want to sit in it. What is it you're doing? And that's something that's, we're kind of in this discovery phase in our first year, two, or three of a church plan. Is going, okay, God, what is it you want to give us? What is it we need to give ourselves to? What is it we just need to invest in? But he sits and waits in it. You know, if, if you guys remember anything about the Rwandan genocide, I, I just forget the names. Of the, I think it's like the Hutu people were trying to kill like the Tutsi people. If you know anything about that or study that, read about that. In 100 days, 800,000 people were, were murdered. Crazy genocide in our, in our lifetime, in our generation. Absolutely disgusting, absolutely evil. I don't know if you've ever seen or heard the movie Hotel Rwanda, but there is a phenomenal quote that's kind of reliving one story from that terrible genocide. And here's the quote. It's, it's someone who's talking to the news paper reporter person, and they're going, okay, let's get the word out. Like, how do we let America know? How do we let people know what's happening? And, and here's the quote. The reporter says, I think if people see this footage, they'll say, oh my God, that's horrible. And then go on eating their dinners. It's way too real. It's like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe 800,000 people in 100 days. What's for dinner? <laughs> but that's, that is a reality. There's something where I'm saying, I'm not, I'm not saying we just have to react. I'm not saying that, but let's sit in it a little bit. Let's not move on to that next video. Let's not move on to that next thing. Here's some things happening in our county. We're from Deerfield now here in Boca, and so here's some things in both counties happening. Um, this is someone who helped me research this and get these, these facts. So homelessness. So far in 2019, there are 2,803 individuals that are homeless in Broward County, 305 are children. That was, I think, of an end of April. Almost 3,000 homeless individuals. Here in Palm Beach County, there's about 1,308 Homeless individuals, 414 are children. Foster care in Broward County, children in and out of home uh, care, as of 4.30, there's 1,611. 1,600 kids who's not sure if they're going to be reunited with their family or not. Uh, here in Palm Beach County, there's 1,143. 
The average daily jail population in Broward County is about 3,600. Daily. The average daily jail population in Palm Beach County is almost 2,000. Domestic violence in Broward in 2017 was about 5,600 cases of domestic violence reported. Now, I'm not just trying to stir emotion. I'm just trying to say, here's, here's where we live. Here's our backyard. Domestic violence, homelessness, foster care, prisons. All the places Jesus is like, care for the orphan, the widow. Go into the prison. You've done it to me. My question is like, okay, I'm not just saying let's react. We just need to sit in this. Like, God, what is it you're doing? Is there a group of people here that you're raising up to, to go to the prison that we need to love and support? God, foster care, we, we have a partnership in relation with four kids, but what does that look like long-term? Or maybe some of you are individually called to foster. You're called to be part of that solution. We know that many of you are. We thank Jesus for you. I'm just saying, what, I- what is that? How do we not just go, oh, it's terrible. Oh, I can't wait for lunch. Those steak sandwiches sound so good for guy day. Like, what, how do we actually just say, Lord, I need to sit in this a little bit. Jeremiah just sits in it. I really don't know. Here's what I'm, I'm not trying to, I really don't know what the Lord is doing. Sometimes I'm just praying, I'm like, God, what are you doing? Just make it clear, and I want to be on board with it. Like, what does that mean for me? To, is, does that mean fostering for, like, what does that mean? And, and there's questions I'm afraid to ask. You know how Jeremiah asked questions? That was the first point. Guys, there's questions I'm afraid to ask. And I just say, ask those questions. Are you with me, church? Ask those questions. What is God going to ask you to do? But it's like, we're so close to retirement, and God's like, foster. You're like, no, the kids are almost out of the house. I don't want to hear that word right now. I don't, I don't know. But I'm just saying, like, what is it God is doing? You know, there's a quote by a pastor named Adrian Rogers. He says this. Listen to this. He says, When was the last time you shed a tear over some soul that was mortgaged to the devil? Oh, my dear friend, we pray without crying, we give without sacrifice, we live without fasting. Is it any wonder that we sow without reaping? Weeping, fasting, praying, seeking the face of God has become a lost art. It's very too real. This is, this is not a message for me. I'm like, yes, I get to do this. I get to talk about this. This is something where I'm like, God, what are you doing? I, you put me in uncomfortable spots. I get comfortable again. You put me in uncomfortable spots. Moving here. I don't know. It's just, there's different things. What are you doing, God? You know, there's a great story by a guy named William Booth who started the Salvation Army. I think it was just called, before the Salvation Army, it was like missions, m- Christ's mission, I think is what it's called. It's really, anyways, William Booth who started this, he was talking to one of the people who was on staff and there to go to neighborhoods and help and meet different needs and and this particular person on staff was going, talking to William Booth, going, I'm having a really, this community's not letting me in. They're not changing. I cannot educate them. They're stubborn. And he's like talking to William Booth, like, what do I do? And literally his, his response to him was, and this is it. He goes, have you tried tears? Try tears. Try, just try that out. Sometimes I can go at a problem like, let's fix it, right? And like, we get like a manager, like, I want to fix it. And it's, I was like, stop, just stop. I guess I get in trouble as a married man. I'm just like, you know, it's like, stop, don't fix it. Just try something different. Try tears. Try a genuine love for the people in the community you're serving. For, for years, we did different things locally. And I go there and I go, there's no results. And it's uh, this quote, when I read this, I go, ugh, this is something for me. It's like, I, ha- I didn't try that. I tried talking to people. I tried convincing people. I didn't try tears. See, here's the second part to revival. Ready? Again, have a genuine brokenness. Genuine. I, I can't force that. No one can. The Holy Spirit has to do that. Nehemiah had a genuine brokenness. 140 years later, after the whole Babylonian thing, he's like, there's been two waves of exiles coming back. What's the word? Still not good. 
genuinely broken. Number three, what does that turn into? Follow along, don't miss this. It turns to prayer. Number three is pray. Now, please listen to this. If I wish, and you know me, I'd be like, let's do a three-week series on verse five through 11, because just it's so, this is probably one of the best prayers in the Old Testament. What a complete whole prayer, which we're gonna look at. By the way, in Nehemiah, do you know there's 12 individual prayers, or it says, whether he says he prayed, or Nehemiah has like these little prayers where it says, Nehemiah goes, God, give me strength. I love those like Nehemiah prayers. He's like, oh, Lord, help. That's a prayer. But there's 12 times you see Nehemiah praying. This is the first one. It's like the most in-depth, thorough one, and listen to this prayer. Let's just read verse five through 10. Can we do that again? Here in Nehemiah's prayer, ready? He says, and I said, after he's weeping, broken, fasting, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your commandments and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now day and night. It's not a one-time thing, day and night. For the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. Like circle I. (laughs) Verse seven, we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Let's stop there. There's one more part of the prayer, but let's just stop there really quick. I want you to hear this prayer. By the way, if you're new to praying and like you're intimidated by prayer, what a great prayer to like study and look at more. Um, maybe you've like, there's some kind of like, I don't want to call them cheesy, but cheesy like outlines for prayer, but they are helpful. One of them is like basically seen here, like acts, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, acts. I don't know this, but th- you can, but this, this is helpful, all right? Sorry, I grew up with these things way too much as a kid, um, but this is helpful, and here's one that's just necessary, adoration. Do you, do you see how he begins? Like, verse five is like, oh God, you're so great. You're incredible. There's no one like you. By the way, I think in prayer, please, please, if, if we pray to God and he's small, we'll, we will pray small. If we pray to God he's, and he's big, he, we will pray big. I just think that's very real. If I view my God as God, you're a big God. You spoke things into existence. This is not too hard for you. I think I need to pray big more. I need to approach God with adoration more. This is what he does, then he'd confession. Now, not just, we're not gonna walk through this like the acts way, but I do wanna point out a couple things. Here's the first thing. He confesses sin and there's no victim mentality. And please hear this. He confesses sin for his people, for himself. Sin. I, it's not them. If I'm Nehemiah, I'm going, my fathers who got us into Babylon, like, God, forgive them. He's like, that was me. It's like, that's 140 years ago, Nehemiah. He's like, that's me. It's very interesting because we live in a very individualistic society, very individualistic. Like, that is them, that's them, this is me, I'm not part of this. And we try to act like things are separated when he goes, no, no, this is all together. I know, the way God made us, we're all connected. Like, no, I'm sorry, this this is me. This isn't just my great-great-grandparents, this is me. We, I, I have sinned. My father's house, I have sinned against you. This is so important. And church, please hear this. I don't want to move on from this one because this one's like a touchy one. This is one where you, you look on and go, let's think about the church as a whole. When I talk to someone who's like, I can't believe you go to church or part of church or pastor of church, you know what the church has done? They've done some pretty disgusting things. Usually you, you gotta agree. Like historically, when the church has taken power in any capacity, it's done some pretty terrible things. And there's a side of it where you, God forgive us for that. The church as a whole has not been the most loving to the LGBTQ community. 
I'm not saying we need to affirm their lifestyle decisions. I'm saying we need to love them like Christ would love them. And that is one of those things where people, it is hard for our generation to go, wait, you, if you love them, you have to affirm everything. No. Sooner or later, God's word stands up against me and what I think and at you. And it's gonna, it, there's going to be some sort of conflict. But we need to be better at loving. When you look at just the church as a whole and just how we've handled racism, we've been complicit in ways. We need to, rep- we need to literally own things. I really do believe we need to own things. He's not saying, no, no, that's them. That's my grandparents. That wasn't me. I'm just saying, and some of you don't want, I don't like this point. I know, I don't like it either. It's one of those things where we do have to sit in this and go, God, what is it I have to sell? What are are some things that are changing how I view this community or poverty? What are some things I have to own, repent, so I can actually love them the way you love them? I might be viewing this community group of people or this this situation and going, well, it's because it's their fault, rather than me saying, Lord, help me love them the way you would in this moment. Help me see this. This is, help me own this. This is really interesting how he just owns the sins of his forefathers and himself. Not only is that, but listen to this. Um, this is a word-saturated prayer. Actually, can I have one more quote? Because I, I, you know I love quotes, right? Uh, here's a good quote by James Montgomery Boyce about this. Sorry. Going back, he says, It is when leaders forget their sinfulness that they fail, they fall into sin and lose their leadership ability. That just struck my heart. When I, when I forget my sinfulness, that's, that's when I fall. Remember, he's like, remember your sinfulness. Remember that you are not above them. Number two, he does this. Uh, there's this word-saturated prayer. Guys, I want to put this out. This is just filled with the word. He's quoting Deuteronomy 7, 8, 11, 28, Leviticus 26, 1 Kings 8. I mean, if you read this prayer, he's just speaking the word of God. He even says, I'm praying your word, God. I, I think there's something about praying the word of God back to God. Hey, God, your word says, like, I'm, I'm holding on to this. I have to hold on to this. This is your promise from you. I, it's crazy. Whenever you do read men and women's prayers in the Bible, they're like, God, you said this. There's some pretty audacious prayers. Like, like, I, I'm just, God, you said it, so I'm just going to quote it back to you. I know you know it, I know. But there's something about praying scripture. Absolutely. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debt. Like, there's something about praying scripture back to God. God, you said this. You, you said this. Not only that, but listen to this. Uh, it's a promise claiming prayer. So let me point something out. Do you notice what he's doing? He's going, our forf- you promised, God, you promised that if we rebelled against you, You'd scatter us among the world, and you've done that. You're really good at your promise. <laughs> you've scattered us. Now he's like, now redeem the second half of that promise and bring us back. So it's interesting. I love that he's like, he's recognizing the judgment that God said this would happen. There will be judgment if you continue in this. And he's like, yes, we sinned, and there was judgment. But also, God, you promised if we repent and come to you, you'll gather us back together, and that's what I'm doing. And that's what we're doing. And, and he's really just, he's holding on to even that. He, he knows the words so well. It's like he's plucking the right scripture out at the right moment at the right time. He goes, this is our situation today in this moment. I'm plucking it out and applying it to the situation right now. So know the word. And, and, and he has that promise claim. And then here's what I also see. He has an expectant prayer. The tone of this is like, okay, God, and you are going to bring us back together. The tone of this is crazy. I don't know if you've ever been around someone who prays expectantly. It's almost intimidating. If you've been around like a true intercessor for prayer, and they're praying big things, I'm almost like, <laughs> like I almost want to leave, because I'm like, God, I'm sorry, like, that's them, I didn't ask that, like, but there's something really, really refreshing about it. There's something going to God and saying, God, I'm, I do believe you. I'm expectant for you to move. I'm expectant for you to move. Can I tell you, it's one of the strangest things we're told, obviously, with the faith of mustard seed, we can move, we're told these things, and it's like, when you actually get around someone who does believe that, and they have like faith, they're like, God, I'm going to you with this, with this and you can do a lot with this. There's something incredibly refreshing around that. I would love for us to be a group of people that pray more expectantly, right? Not just pray like, and if you want, God, I mean, this would be cool. Like, just pray and God, you want to do this more than I want to do this. You want to see this done way more than I want to see this done. 
Is that not how we should pray? He's praying expectantly in this moment. By the way, we just, when you see Nehemiah in prayer over and over again, you just think of Jesus in prayer over and over again. What's Jesus doing in the garden? He's praying, Father, if it's your will, this cup pass from me. He's praying on the cross, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. He's weeping over Jerusalem. Do we understand what's happening in this moment? Nehemiah is weeping over Jerusalem. Who would be the one that would weep over Jerusalem? Who would be the one in Matthew 23 and he sees Jerusalem and he goes, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you like a mother chick gathers her hands, but you are not willing. I mean, Nehemiah's brokenness is just a foreshadow of Christ's brokenness, which is great, way greater, way more. Nehemiah rebuilding the walls and Jesus saying, let me, and rebuilding the gates and Jesus would one day walk through the very gates that Nehemiah built to say, here's the solution. And this is what we see happening. We see it just be birthed with prayer. Prayer is definitely not our last resort. It's our first strategy. He's like, oh, I don't know. Well, it's my last thing we can do is pray. It's like, no, no, I'm going to start with prayer. And then moving on, let's end with this. He's going to act, and he does act. But I want to read verse 11. Number four, he acts. This is the start of revival. He acts. Look at verse 11. Very interesting how he ends. Oh, Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name and let your servant, he says servant eight times, by the way, know, know our position as we approach God. Uh, we're your, serv- your servant, servant, we're your servants, they're your servant, and let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. Now the chapter ends, and just when you read the text, I know there's no chapters and verses, but here's what's interesting. And he goes, give me favor with this man. Look at the end of verse 11. I want favor with this man. Who's this man? He kind of says, like, I was the king's cupbearer. He's saying, give me favor with the king, I'm going to the king. And like in his prayer, he's going, I'm, I'm going to go to the king, but if I go to the king, God, I, I need your favor. I cannot blow this. It could end of my death. Help me do it the right way, the right timing. We'll see later, he does not go to the king for months. Months go by. When we read chapter two next week, know that there's months that go by. You'll see that. He's praying, he's fasting, months go by, then he goes to the king. And this is so important. He does act, and he will act. And when it comes to revival, we, yes, we ask questions, yes, we weep, yes, we pray, but we must act. By the way, how does it end? I was the king's cupbearer. And, and you might know this. He's the guy, in, in the simple terms, that does taste the wine to make sure it's not poison. Nehemiah dies, oh, you're trying to poison me. You could say, oh, that's just like a poor peasant role. Actually, it's a very trusted role. That's like, I'm looking to you, I'm trusting you, did you really drink it? Did you really? You're sitting in all the meetings, you're hearing everything, eventually, you're just his right-hand guy. You're part of everything. Every decision he's making, he's like, Nehemiah, you've seen the full picture. No, not everyone has seen the full picture. Nehemiah had a very unique situation. And by the way, he's not a pastor. He's not a priest. He's not a prophet. He's a government worker. Wow, a government worker praying, right? Like, it's unbelievable. It's, he's working for the government. And he's like, he's gonna, this is not a separation between sacred and secular. Everything's sacred. Everything's God. And he's praying. And I want us to see this. I, guys, I want us to see that when you read the Bible, it's just filled it's just filled with average Joes and Joettes just doing crazy things for God. I love it. When you read Hebrews 11 and the Hall of Faith, it's first of all, it's like a mess. Like you have prostitutes and murderers. It's, there's people who've done terrible things. And God's like, these are my people who acted in faith. These are my people. They'll forever be remembered, not for their sins. They're not remembered for their sins in Hebrews 11, just for their acts of faith. And they're just average Joes. Some of these people were farmers. Some were shepherds. Some were government workers, tax collectors. I mean, it was literally, it was not all, it wasn't pastors, prophets, wasn't always kings, it wasn't that. There were some just average people who took big steps for God, big steps of faith for God. Guys, really quick, 
Nehemiah, obviously, and we'll see this more next week, but he leverages his position to do great work for the people of God, for God. So here's my question. How can you and I leverage our position for the people of God, for the work of God? What is God saying? I have you in this industry for this reason. You have the ear of this person. You are the ear of that person. (laughs) I have you here for such a time as this. It's Esther before him, and now it's Nehemiah's turn. And God is constantly raising up people and putting them in position saying, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to use you. Are you ready to be used? Are you listening? Are you broken? Are you praying? Are you fasting? Are you open to this? this is, he's in an unbelievable position for an unbelievable work of God, but he had to be willing and ready to go. And he had to care. Guys, here, here for us. So what, is this, what does this mean? I don't really know. But how can we start asking the right questions? God, what is it you're doing and how do we get on board? What is it you want us to do locally in our community? What can we do in the Caribbean and South America further on? How can we plant churches where the gospel's dead to those people? How can we plant churches where it's never been the gospel? What is it you're, like, how do we be a part of this, God? Who do you want to send? Who do you want to raise up? Where should we invest our resources and time and energy into? And there's some, these are the prayers we're praying. I'm asking you, please join us in this. As we're praying through some of these things for the next five years, 10 years, 15 years, it's like, please join us. I do not want to just act hastily. Months go by and he's like, now's my opportunity. I have no idea what this will look like for us. I have no idea what this will look like for you. Where God's like, yes, I put you in a position. Now it's time to go. Hey, Nehemiah, what does he do? I'm going to leave the royal palace, and I'm going to enter into brokenness, and I'm going to build. Who is that? That is Jesus. I'm going to leave my royal position. I'm going to enter into the brokenness, and I'm going to build. I'm going to build Jerusalem. I'm going to go into this place. I'm going to die for the sins of the world. I'm going to redeem mankind. I'm going to enter into the pain of it. I'm going to leave my comfort. And I think what is the question for us today is, what is God asking you and I to leave the comfort of? And saying, I want to stretch you and move you. And church, I'm just asking when we hear that, when we know that, let's move. There will be a time when we'll come back up and say, we need to be a part of this. And I'm going to ask, let's go. There'll be a time you might come and start another group and say, we need to do something about this. Gather those people. Meet that need. Whether it's foster care or prison, I don't like. Obviously, we we can't do everything, but we gotta do something. That we gotta engage in this. And our hope is through our community groups. Our hope is just through our church in different ways. Saturdays, weeknights. There are many ways we're currently doing this, and there's many ways we want to start doing this more. But this is not just us. This is like the burden has to be on you. It has to be the shared way, the shared responsibility. And let's go and let's reclaim what, what the enemy has taken. Let's go and rebuild. Amen. Here's what I want to do. Let's not move around. Let's not be distracted. I do want to just end with like prayer and a, almost like a, just a unified prayer. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. In just a second, I'm going to ask you to stand. Grab the person's hand next to you and just wipe off the sweat. It's okay. Don't worry. But I'm just going to ask that you guys stand right now. And before we pray, and let's not make a lot of noise. Before we pray corporately, can you just grab the person's hand next to you or near you? And I'm just going to ask that you pray silently again, like the way we started service. Take 20 seconds, bow your head, close your eyes, and say, God, how does this relate to me in this moment of time? What are some questions I'm afraid to ask? What are some questions I've been asking, but now it's time for me to, like Nehemiah, be the answer to my very own question? So I'm going to ask that you guys just bow your heads as you take a few seconds to pray, and then we're going to pray together. Jesus, as we just stand in this place, 
holding hands. God, our desire for us is to be one as you, Jesus, and your Father are one. Our desire is to hear from you and to walk in obedience. God, remove fear in this place, fear from those questions, fear from acting on those questions. God, I just ask that it would not be a work of the flesh. <laughs> Lord, in no way could Nehemiah do this. It had to be a work of the Spirit. And so, God, we just ask it would be a work of your Spirit. That, God, you would just pour out dreams and vision, like you said in Joel, like you said in Acts. God, that you would just give burdens to people that, Lord, we would just see the fruit of it years to come. I, I don't know, God, who is it you're raising up, sending out? Who is it, God, just, I believe all of us are raised up and sent out to our neighborhood locally here. So God, equip us. Help us to see things we don't see currently. Let us start simple. Let us remember our neighbor's names. <laughs> Lord, let us love them, serve them well. Jesus, we just ask that you would do something only you can do. And so again, we acknowledge it's not by might, not by power, but by your spirit, Jesus. So we thank you. We look to you. God, fill everyone in this place with you. Let it just be a hunger for you, knowing that the greater, the greater Nehemiah came, the greater than Nehemiah walked through the gates so that he could ultimately be the lamb that paid for the sins of the world. Thank you, Jesus. We're here because of you. Always, God, bring our heart back to the gospel. Always motivate us by your love. We ask Jesus in your name. Amen. Continue standing and let's just worship.